Welcome to church. It's very nice to be here with all of you. Well, today we're here yet again to worship our great God. And we will do so in song, in prayer, and in hearing God's word together. So let's get ready our hearts and our minds and our voices to do so. So before we begin, let me just invite you to take a moment now to pause and prepare your hearts for worship. Let's close our eyes. And let's be still and bring to mind that he is our holy God. Dear Lord, we gather as your people today to worship you. Thank you for the week gone by and for the ways you've shown us your goodness and your faithfulness yet again. We, can, we confess, Lord, that we haven't always taken you as seriously as we should and we haven't loved you with our whole hearts. And for these, we ask for your forgiveness, Lord as we bring to mind your holiness and your gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, please help us come before you with reverence and also with rejoicing. May you be honored in our time of worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing to the Lord together.
nice to see you, and uh, I do want to say since this is my first weekend back, thank you for those who are praying for me and for my family, and uh, we had our memorial service for my mother, and we just celebrate that hope that we just sang about, that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And one of the things I always do is I miss worshiping with you, and one of the things I was doing as I was away, I was reading through the New Testament in the message, and I came across 1 Corinthians 11 once again, and this uh, paraphrase, this translation just, just, just jumped out at me. I want to share it with you as we come to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. And as you might observe, it just jumps out and you say, there's something going on there and it's really important for us. I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread, having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. One of the things that we're very aware of at this church is we have the Lord's Supper every weekend. Some churches, it's once a quarter, once a month. For us, every weekend, we have the Lord's Supper. And so it's very easy for us to just be familiar. We do this all the time, every week. And yet it's sacred, it's special, it's central to us because Jesus has said, this is my body for you. This cup is my blood, the new covenant with you. Going on to verse 27 through 28, the warning. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Examine your motives, test your heart, come to this meal in holy awe. Isn't that amazing? We're, we're not familiar. We're in awe. We are recognizing there's something so important, so special that has happened, and we're remembering it. And so one of the things I'd like us to do, and often we take time just to confess our sins. But this was one I wanted to confess and want to confess with you is that sometimes we're treating this table as if we've been there, done that. This is the Lord's body. This is the Lord's blood. We do it in remembrance of him. And we do it in holy 
awe. Just ask forgiveness for those times when you have not approached this table in holy awe and then make it your goal, your passion right now to approach the Lord's Supper in holy awe. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is an act of faith. and This is the Lord's table. You are invited. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, please do not partake. As we said, there's a, a warning there. What we want to do is invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him as Lord and Savior. And that offer is made to you today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a moment of silence just to acknowledge the Lord, his presence, his death on the cross for us his blood shed for our sins, the resurrection of the Lord. Let's confess that we have not always treated this table with the respect, with the awe, with the holy reverence that God commands. Lord Jesus, right now, no contempt, no arrogance, no flippant attitude. We want to recognize the amazing significance of what this table represents to us. Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen. Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, and the forgiveness of our sins. As we partake right now, may we recognize you and do it in holy awe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've been doing in these days, we'll serve from the front. I'm going to ask the first five, ten rows to go ahead and stand, and you can come side to the side to the center, come to the center. Take the bread and hold it. Take the cup and hold it. We're going to partake together and recognize Christ Jesus together in just a moment.
Every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the Master. What Jesus does is he draws us into that event, that central event in our salvation. And we recognize we come not because we're worthy, but because of God's grace, his love, and we are forgiven. Jesus, Son of God, gives himself for us. He breaks the bread and he offers it to his disciples and to us. And he says, this is my body. Take in remembrance of me. Let's take together. In the same way, he takes the cup offers it to his disciples and he offers it to us and he says this is my blood the new covenant for you take in remembrance pray with me Lord Jesus each one of us has been blessed we are recipients of grace mercy love forgiveness and life forever in awe of your love for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.
to someone around you before you have a seat. Once again, it's nice to see you. Uh, I haven't done scripture at Subi for a while, and I've heard that you've been working on a great scripture verse, which is what? Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I think it's a it's very simple verse to memorize, but once you embrace it, it means everything. So think about it. If the Lord is indeed my shepherd. The second part is true. What, what could I possibly lack as his sheep? And sometimes we think, I'm missing something. There may be something I'm missing. But here's what I want you to affirm today. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And here's how we know the, that psalm ends up. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will what? Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Hang on to that verse. Don't let it go. We'll memorize it, and this is the last weekend for this month. We'll memorize it, but we're going to live that out for the rest of our lives because that's how important it is. So let's do it one more time. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Oh, that's great. The kids have got it down. I hope you all have it down. We're going to let the kids go, and they can go and uh, go to their school, uh, Bible school classes. And if you're new to Subi Church, and you, parents, if you want to meet the teachers, you're welcome to go out and meet the teachers and uh, rejoin us. And I do want to welcome each and every one of you here. My name is Ben Johnston. I'm one of the pastors here. And one of our joys is to be able to worship God, to be able to serve God, and to be able to teach our children the truth of Scripture. And that's what's happening right now in our children's ministry. Now, we have a Connect card, and there's some physical Connect cards on your chairs. Or you can look at the uh, QR code behind me. And what we ask you to do is go ahead and scan that in or let us know that you're here. The other thing is it allows us to, to get a prayer request or just comments, feedback from you. But it's really important for us that you participate with that. And so we do want you to do that as well. If you're visiting with us, you are our guest. We're delighted that you're here. We would love to get to know you right after this service. We'll have people with red lanyards that uh, will identify themselves it's just some of our, our hosts that will uh, welcome you. While you're filling out the Connect card, let me get up this next slide, so I'm just going to do this quickly. This is just telling you what we need to know but often need to be reminded of. If you are not feeling well or your children are not feeling well, please do not bring them. Please do not come. We're just trying to look after one another. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, now I'm just going to talk about the offering for just a moment which is our opportunity to give joyfully to the Lord. And what we often do, most people do this, is electronically. And so if you do that, I want to say thank you. 
I'm going to pray for that in just a moment, but also there's a box as you head out on the left. If you'd like to give physically, that's available as well. But let's just thank God for how he provides for us, and let's just go to him right now. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. And when we give to you, it is out of joy, not obligation. And we know that you love a cheerful giver, and so this day and every day, we want to give to you cheerfully. In Christ's name, amen. So I've got uh, the announcement, but I really only have one announcement, and it's going to be big, so I need you to pay attention to this one announcement. And I won't give you any more than this one. Um, now, you've seen sometimes these television shows, movies, where things are right towards the end, and you know the thing's going to be wrapping up. And, and there's a, a few things that are missing, and the hero comes in right at the last minute and fills the gap and fills the void. Have you ever seen a movie like that? They're all over the place. Okay, here's what we're doing. Coming up, not this coming Monday, but a week from Monday, we have Kids Club. So let's look at that. Here's Kids Club coming, and here's where you come in. This is where the heroes get to ride in on the white stallion because we just have a few gaps, a few gaps that really, really need to be filled. And what we're going to ask you to do is consider filling those gaps. Now, we're not asking you, most of you cannot do five days. That's not what we're asking. But there are a few gaps in the schedule that we need you to fill. The highest priority is going to be the crew leaders. That's just being with the kids. It's not a teaching responsibility. It's a showing Jesus Christ to our children and letting them see what Christianity and following Christ looks like through our words, through our attitude, through just being gracious and Christ-like towards them. Now, we also have, and so there's uh, one day or more that you can sign up for that, but that's our highest priority. There's limited opportunities for the cafe and for the welcome, and as you might understand, the welcome is just right at the beginning of the day, but it's still important that we have people who welcome and sign the children in. The goal is to get every responsibility filled every day. That's a church responsibility. Now, why is this so important? This is one of the biggest weeks in our ministry calendar. We have 170 children signed up for our kids' club. What they are expecting is kids' club, and that's what we're committed to provide. And what we want to do is just show them the joy and the love of Christ and teach them that gospel message. Now, here's what you need to know. Some of the kids, many of them will come from Subi Church. Other children will come from other churches, but then dozens will come, and they are unchurched. In other words, this is the only time they will ever be in church. This is the only time they will hear about the Lord Jesus Christ from those who love him and worship him. That's why it's important that we fill these gaps. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Prayerfully consider, and I'm saying between now and the end of this service, what you can do. There's going to be people out at the table out there, and they'll be able to help you. Now, some of you may think, well, I'm not sure I'm qualified. Please just ask the people at the table. Tell them what you can do, when you can serve, and look at the gaps because it's not the whole week. There's just a few gaps that need to be filled. Am I clear on that? 
That's hero time because we need those filled before it comes up. Please do not wait. Inquire, sign up. This will be our final push. This weekend will be our final push for volunteers. And so there's just a few needs that need to be filled, but they're very important for us. And they'll be very important for Kids Club. Again, I want to say thank you for those who have already signed up. Thank you for those who have been part of the Busy Bees. You'll see some of the props and so forth already going around, and you'll see them uh, at places. I don't see any up here right now, but I think I've seen them back out here, and it's already happening. But we're just at that ninth hour, 11th hour, whatever it is, and we just need a few more people to step up and serve. Please prayerfully consider whether you can do that or not. Let me just pray with you, and we're going to pray for Kids Club right now. Father, we just want to commit that week of Kids Club to you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for so many who have already stepped up to volunteer. And we just need a few more. And I pray that you would put on the hearts of people in this room right now the desire to serve. And I pray that you would open it up on their calendar so that they might be able to do it. Father, you know, I, I often see our people serving and they're having as much fun as the kids and I pray that it would be a relationship building time a gospel time a time where you would be honored and glorified and so Lord we just want to commit kids club to you right now all the volunteers and all the children and the parents and we pray even now as a congregation that you would draw children and families to yourself for your glory we pray this in Christ's name Amen. I've got one more prayer. I said I had one announcement, but I've got one more prayer. I, wanna, I just want to have a time of pastoral prayer with you. And one of the things that I'm concerned about, because uh, I got in, still doing the jet lag thing, I got in this week from uh, Dallas, but I'm aware of the threats that are coming out of Russia, and we have been praying every week for peace in Ukraine. And the threats that are coming out of Russia are scary. And we have a king of kings that we can go to in prayer. And that's what we're called to do. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we pray for peace in Ukraine. That we pray that no nuclear weapons or the threat of nuclear weapons exists. We pray that that would not happen. We pray for cooler heads to prevail. We pray for wisdom for the world leaders around us and how they interact. But most of all, we need God's help. So I'm going to give you a moment to pray for that, and then I'm going to introduce our guest speaker. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you that you are almighty God, that you sit enthroned in the heavens, that you are king of kings and lord of lords, that you raise up nations and kings in power, and you put them down. Lord, we are called to pray because we are your people and we believe in the power of prayer. Father, when we hear of world leaders threatening nuclear warfare, we want to take those threats seriously. But even more seriously do we take the fact that you are God and we trust in you. Lord, we want to intercede on the behalf of the people of Ukraine. We pray again for a withdrawal, for peace, 
for change, whatever needs to take place, but we pray for peace. And Lord, we know that whenever we pray for peace, we are praying for the Prince of Peace, ultimately, for him to come. And so, Lord, we pray, come quickly. Father, again, we thank you that even in these difficult days that we can trust in you, we will not fall into despair, but we will pray and we will pray without ceasing. So, Lord, help us in these days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to have our scripture reading. Uh, as I said, I, I got back from uh, Dallas this week, and I had two weddings that I officiated already today, and I knew before I left, I did not want to speak on the weekend, on uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. And so uh, I was blessed enough to have a, a very good friend, Greg Burgess, and some of you know Greg, and you also know his daughter, who is, what's her name? Yeah, Jackie. Yeah, Jackie. You're right, right. Uh, Jackie was part of one of the weddings as well. Uh, Greg is a pastor. He's been pastoring here. He's also been pastoring in New Zealand. I first met him when he was lecturing at Adelaide College of Ministries, and so I went there to, to be a guest lecturer for a week, and he picked me up at the airport. He is a, a fine man of God. He loves the Lord. He is a wonderful teacher of God's Word, and we are blessed to have him here. And so I want you to know he is doing this as a favor to me. Sometimes you can think, well, why, why are we doing this? He's doing it as a favor to me, and I really appreciate it, Greg. His wife, Wendy, is with him. And so in just a moment, we're going to be welcoming Greg to our pulpit. But first, we're going to have our Bible reading. Good evening, church. This week's Bible reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Let's welcome Greg Burgess. Thank you, church, for that rousing welcome. Um, I think I might prefer that you clap afterwards. You don't quite know what's coming, do you? Good to be with you this evening. And uh, thank you for treating my daughter well while she was here on your pastoral staff for, what, five years? Was she here for five years? Um, she speaks very highly of you all, so thank you. We, um, uh, as parents, we were concerned for her, of course, leaving home and coming to, to minister in a different state, but uh, you looked after her well, so we thank you. And thank you particularly, Ben. She really appreciated your leadership too. Okay, can I pray as we come to God's word? Uh, our God and Father, we thank you for your word because it is truth, it's reliable, it's all the divine revelation that we need, and our prayer is that you might help us to wrestle well with what it is that you've said. Our prayer is that you might help us to bring our lives into line with what you desire for us as revealed in the scriptures. 
And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that there are basically two types of people in the world. There are here I am type people and there you are type people. So a here I am type person is the person who comes into a room and by their presence and their words, they're communicating, here I am, love me. Here I am, the party can begin. And then there are other people who come into the room and they communicate through their words and through their actions. There you are. How are you doing? Can I help you? So I'm not talking about introverts and extroverts because you can be an extrovert, come into a room and lighten it up, but still communicate, there you are, how are you doing? And you can be an introvert and come into a room and dull it down and communicate still, here I am, it's all about me. So here I am type people, there you are type people. So if you had to put yourself in one of those categories, which would it be? Now, the truth is that we're a mixture of both. Okay, that's the truth. Sometimes we're better at being there you are type people. Sometimes we're more here I am type people. But if you had to choose just one that described you, which would it be? Now, my guess, which is not really a guess because I've got inside knowledge, is that really most of us tend to be here I am type people. Because the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful. The Bible says that we struggle with selfishness, that we tend to be self-focused and we see things from our own perspective and we tend to work towards what works best for us. So most of us tend to be here I am type people. Now, I believe God, particularly when it comes to the salvation of others, is very much a there you are type person. And he wants us to move from being here I am type people to there you are type people. He's always desired that for believers. Now, the ancient people of Israel were created as a nation in order to represent God to the world. If you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, that's where we believe all the nations and the cultures have come from, all the different language groups, Genesis 10 and 11. And because of judgment, God spread them all over the world. But right away after that, in Genesis 12, God raises up a man through whom he creates a nation to reach all those nations that are scattered. That man is Abraham, and the nation that comes from him is Israel. And so Israel was meant to be a billboard that said, God is real, God is good, God wants you to be reconnected with him. Israel, as a nation, were meant to be there-you-are type people, a there-you-are type nation. However, as time went on, the Old Testament tells us that Israel failed pretty miserably at that task and they actually became very self-focused, very introverted and very much about themselves. So if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me please to the book of Jonah? To the book of Jonah because I believe that Jonah represents the nation of Israel at the time of the writing of this book and that even though I, you know, Jonah is the real person, I believe in the historicity of the book, but I think Jonah himself represented the nation of Israel and that God, through the writing of this book, was trying to move the nation from being a here-I-am type nation to a there-you-are type nation, from having a focus on themselves to having a focus on 
other people, particularly for their salvation, because they had fallen into this trap of having a very hard heart. So we're going to whiz through the book of Jonah tonight, okay? All four chapters, but we can do it if you just hang in there with me. Ben said, I've got a couple of hours, so I hope you're ready. No. We'll see how we go. So you know the story. Hopefully you're reasonably acquainted with the story of Jonah. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, he gets commissioned to go to Nineveh and he refuses. He hates Nineveh. Nineveh are Israel's sworn enemies and they are pagans. The Jews, the, the, the Hebrew people, they have the covenants, they have the promises, they are God's favourite people. Why would they have anything to do with these pagans? And so he runs away as far as he can. He's called to go to the east, he instead heads to the west, jumps on board of a ship. And you'll see in verse 4 of chapter 1 that the Lord, literally it says in the Hebrew, sent a great wind onto the storm and created a great storm at sea. That word sent, by the way, is a key word in the book. You'll see that throughout the book, God sends stuff into Jonah's life in order to get his attention. Um, He's going to send this storm. He's going to send a fish. He's going to send a great east wind. He's going to send a plant. He's going to send a worm. God is sending stuff constantly into Jonah's life to grab his attention. What's fascinating is that he's on board with a whole bunch of pagan sailors. And these are seasoned sailors. And this storm is so bad that the ship is about to break up. And these sailors are fearing for their life. But have a look at what it says in verse 5. So they're throwing all the cargo over the board. But Jonah, it says, had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. You might have into a deep sleep in your translations. Um, just as a, as a teaching thing here, in a narrative, biblical narrative, always pay attention to the adjectives. Okay, adjectives are little words that describe nouns. They're important because the author doesn't need to use them. So if the author is using adjectives, he's doing it deliberately to add colour and, and emphasis. So Jonah goes below decks. There's a huge storm on the, on the ocean, on the, on the surface. But he is down there having a sleep, just a little nap. What kind of sleep? A deep sleep, a sound sleep. He's sleeping like a little baby. God has sent a huge storm to try and get his attention. So what is this telling us about Jonah's conscience? His God conscience. So what's fascinating about chapter 1, Jonah and the pagan sailors, is that the kind of behaviour and attitude you'd expect from a believer is going to be evidenced in the sailors, the pagans. And the kind of attitude you expect from believers, uh, from pagans rather, is going to be evidenced in Jonah. And this is what we see. So huge storm, Jonah's having a wonderful sleep, completely unaware almost that God... He's trying to get his attention. They wake him up. They, they have to ply him with 20 questions to work out what's going on. Now, remember, Jonah is a prophet of God. So a prophet is someone who represents God to man. And so his job basically is to be a missionary, is to be an oracle for God. And yet here he is. The guys have got to basically twist his arm to let, get him to tell them what the deal is. So eventually he says, well, look, the storm is my fault. Throw me overboard. The storm will cease. But what do the sailors do? They say, Jonah, we can't do that. We care for your soul too much. So they strenuously strive to get the boat to safety. Why? Because they care for his soul. Does Jonah care for their souls? Not one little bit. 
but they care for him. But the storm is too great, so they can't do that. And so very reluctantly, they do what Jonah tells them to do, and they throw him overboard, and the sea is calm. And then at the end of the chapter, uh, I believe that they came to faith. I, I believe we will see these sailors in heaven, and they will have one massive story to tell. So Jonah's in the fish now. And in the fish... He starts to pray. He's in there for three days, three nights. Jesus refers to that in the New Testament. And in the fish, he comes to a kind of repentance. He starts to thank God for his salvation. He praises God for his goodness and for his mercy. But what's really interesting is that Jonah's repentance here, and I put it in inverted commas, is Perhaps sincere, but it's not sufficient. If his repentance in chapter 2 was sufficient, we wouldn't have chapter 4. The story would end at the end of chapter 3. So Jonah is repenting of his disobedience, but his disobedience was a result of a much deeper and more vile rebellion against God in his heart. God is after that. That's why God's going to send so much stuff into Jonah's life. That's why we have this book in our Bibles, I believe, is because God is after the source of his rebellion, not just the symptom, which was his disobedience to his call. But it's um, a wonderful prayer in chapter 2. So he, he waxes lyrical, it's very poetic, it's very lovely, but it's not sufficient. Sincere, but not sufficient. And I can't help but think that, that this is an issue that we often struggle with in our Christian life. That we too often pray prayers of repentance that are sincere as far as they go. We mean what we pray, but they're not sufficient because they're not dealing with the root causes of our sin. They're just dealing with the symptoms. And so lo and behold, that same sin that we're struggling with comes back again and bites us time and time and time again. And we're almost captured by that sin. We keep confessing the symptoms of that sin, but we never deal with the root cause, so therefore we never move on. And it restricts our growth as believers. That's certainly true with Jonah, as we will see when we get to chapter 4. So this is where we need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 139. That psalm ends by the psalmist saying, Lord, search me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a, it's a real prayer of honest vulnerability, of opening himself up, saying, Lord, my heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'm, I'm a rat bag at times, and I've, I've, I've done these things. I, I lose my anger too easily. I, I watch the wrong kind of thing too often. I, I gossip way too much. Why am I doing that? What is it within me that's causing me to act in these ways? And sometimes we just need to spend some time in solitude and silence where we really reflect on our heart before God rather than just saying, oh, sorry, God, did it again, and then busily move on with the next thing in our life. God, I believe, and we see this in the book of Jonah, is calling us to a repentance that is sufficient, not just sincere. All right, we get to chapter 3. 
So Jonah repents of his disobedience. Chapter 3, he comes to Nineveh, the great city, and he engages in his preaching ministry, if we can call it that. We only have a very brief record of of his preaching ministry. I'm sure he said a lot more than what chapter 3 tells us. But basically, all chapter 3 tells us is that Jonah walked through the streets of this huge city and said, you guys are toast in 40 days. God is going to judge you in 40 days. Which you might say is not the most compassionate evangelistic preaching you've ever heard. Um, He doesn't seem to be representing God's mercy and grace as perhaps God would want him to. He's just announcing judgment. But um, let me put this this slide up for you in terms of the structure of the book of Jonah because it's a wonderfully constructed short story. The pagans in chapter 3 are parallel with the pagans in chapter 1. So what you expect from believers you see in the Ninevites. And the Ninevites are going to be led by their king just like the sailors in chapter 1 are led by their captain. And even though Jonah marches through their streets and pronounces judgment upon them, the people repent. And the king says, okay, we've got judgment coming. Jonah's told us we've got judgment coming. But perhaps if we repent and we, we are sincere and sufficient with that repentance, God will have mercy on us. What a wonderful attitude. Their hearts are broken. And they are contrite. Um, verse 7, the king issues a decree. says, Do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? No presumption here. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And what, uh, what the king of Nineveh is invoking is the Jeremiah 18.8 principle, which hadn't been written yet, but nonetheless, um, in Jeremiah 18.8, God says, if I decree that I'm going to judge a people and that people repent, then I will relent of that judgment. And that's what they're trusting in. That's what they're hoping for. And verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And I believe God saves them. So I believe we'll see this generation of Ninevites in heaven along with the sailors as well, which is kind of cool. And then we get to chapter 4. story hasn't finished. If the only issue with Jonah was disobedience to his call, it would have finished by now, but that's not the issue that the book is going after. Chapter 4, verse 1. You've got another prayer coming from Jonah, which is going to be, contrasted, if you like, with a prayer in chapter 2. But this one's a shorter prayer and doesn't quite have the same flowery content, if you like, or the, or the positive content as before. Chapter 4, verse 1. So the Ninevites have repented. God has um, seen their repentance and he has relented concerning the judgment. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah. It didn't just displease Jonah. Notice the the adjective. Jonah wasn't just slightly ticked off. It greatly displeased Jonah. He was furious. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? 
Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? This is fascinating. Jonah's quoting Exodus 34 here. He's giving his theology from Moses. How would you rate him if you were doing a theology exam on, on Jonah? How good is he in terms of intellectually understanding God? So he says here, God, you are gracious, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger, you're abundant in loving kindness, you relent concerning calamity. Out of five, how, do, how many does he get? Right. Five. He knows his theology, right? So he's got it in here, but he doesn't have it in here. The truth about who God is isn't in here. Did you notice the last verse in his prayer, by the way, in chapter 2? The last thing he says in his prayer in chapter 2 is, salvation is from the Lord. And he says it positively because he's the one who's experiencing that salvation from the fish. But he also experienced salvation from his sin. So he's happy when that salvation is his. It's, he's happy when God shows him grace and him mercy. But he's really angry when the Ninevites receive this same grace and this same mercy and this same salvation. And that's why he ran away, because he didn't want God to show his blessing on them. And so the Lord says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? Which is something very similar to what he said to Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain got angry that God accepted Abel's offering and not his. And so I think there's a deliberate um, allusion here. And what God is saying to Jonah is, you're just like Cain. You have murderous intent in your heart. So your issue really isn't disobedience to my call. That's just a symptom. You've got hatred and murderous intent in your heart. You're guilty of racism, Jonah. You're guilty of hatred. You're guilty of bitterness. These are the, the, the deep-seated sins that are in your life that represent, I think, the nation of Israel at the time. That's what we're going after, Jonah. But Jonah doesn't get it. Have a look at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself, sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Well, what did he think was going to happen to the city? What was he waiting for? So you can imagine, he goes to the east of the city, he sets up his deck chair, he's got his table next to him with his refreshments, and he's got a little calendar there with 40 days marked on it. And he's crossing off every day. What's he hoping is going to happen on day 40? He wants to see a mushroom cloud over Nineveh, right? He wants to see Nineveh destroyed. So he hasn't listened to God here in God's first rebuke at all. So, verse 6, God is going to give him a lesson in terms of um, what's really going on here, Jonah. Let's, let's deal with the issue that's in your heart, in the heart probably of the people of Israel. So, verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant, literally that sent a plant and it grew up, um, over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was a little bit happy about the plant. 
No, extremely happy, it says. Those adjectives again, they just give us wonderful colour. So Jonah is not neutral here. Jonah's emotions are engaged significantly. He doesn't just have a smile on his face because this plant is, has been given to him and is giving him shelter from the scorching wind and the, um, and the heat. He's extremely happy about this plant. He's in raptures about it. He loves it. This is great. But then verse 7, God appointed a worm. And when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. And then the sun came up and God appointed or he sent a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. So God brings him back to the same point where he was when he was reflecting on what happened at Nineveh. And verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Same question as before, but this time with respect to this little object lesson that he's given Jonah regarding the plant. And Jonah says, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. So he's standing on his, on his principles here. He's, he's showing his integrity. Of course I have good reason to be angry. I had this wonderful plant. Oh, God, it was a lovely plant. I named it, I petted it, I sang to it. We just had this thing going. You know, in modern times, we probably would have got married if we could have. It was a wonderful plant, God. I loved it. My emotions were engaged with this plant. And then you took it away. Of course I have a right to be angry. Ah, oh, says God. Really, Jonah? That's fascinating. So verse 10. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. You're really emotionally engaged, Jonah, with something that is very temporal. Here today, gone tomorrow. Something for which you had no control over, really. And yet you are significantly emotionally attached to the point of death, mourning its loss. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hands as well as many animals? I don't know about some of the older people here, but I grew up watching Sesame Street way before it went woke. Um, and, and when I was watching Sesame Street, they used to sing this song. And it used to be... One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Trigger any memories for you? I hope the singing didn't trigger something else for you. But That's what God is doing here. He's saying, Jonah, one of these things is not like the others. Your love for the plant, your extreme, out-of-controlled emotional attachment to this plant compared to my love for eternal souls... 120,000 people who will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. One of these things is not like the others, Jonah. This comparison is not equal. Don't you see my heart? I mean, you know my heart intellectually, right? You quoted Moses, Exodus 34. You know I'm compassionate and gracious. I relent concerning calamity. Can't you see the difference, Jonah? 
And then what makes this amazing short story even greater is Jonah chapter 4, verse 12. Can someone just read that out for me, please? Verse 12. Oh, there's, there's no verse 12. Right, there's no verse 12. So how did Jonah respond? We're not told, are we? Now, I, I hate to break this to you, but Jonah has passed away. Jonah is dead and he's been gone for a long, long time now. But guess who isn't dead? the readers of this story, we who are listening to it. And so what the writer has done by not telling you how Jonah responded is brought this story right into the present. So the issue isn't how did Jonah respond. The issue isn't even how did Israel respond because we know how they did respond. They didn't respond positively and so God is now using the church to be the billboard to the world, whereas beforehand he was using Israel to be the billboard for him to the world. So the question from Jonah 4 verse 12 is, what about your heart? What about my heart? I heard a preacher um, give this statistic, so I can't validate it, but it sounded really good, so it preaches really well. I'm going to give it to you. He said that Christians, evangelical Christians spend more money on entertainment than they do on missions. We probably could believe that to be true, couldn't we? But if it is true, shame on us. Shame on us. Because what are we doing? We're saying, oh, we're emotionally attached to the comforts of this life, that which is here today and gone tomorrow. It's all about my entertainment. It's all about my success. It's all about me, me, me. Here I am. As opposed to missions, evangelism, the cause of the gospel, it's all about others. Those kids who are coming for Kids Club. It's about them hearing the gospel because they're souls that will live forever. So if we wrap this up, how do you live by faith in a self-focused world? A big idea. Have God's heart for people's salvation. And how do we do that? If we have God's heart for the salvation of others, that should be reflected in our prayers, our giving, and in our priorities. So God, as we had in our reading in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Is that really our desire as well? I'll ask the musicians to come and close for us. Let's stand and let's sing our clothing song.
say thank you to Greg for coming and opening God's Word to us. I also want to say thank you to Greg and Wendy for sharing your beautiful daughter Jackie with us for five years. We have been blessed as a church. We've also been challenged and recognized we want to have that outward focus. And as I said earlier, I'm asking you to consider, can you be a part of Kids Club? So uh, there's people at the table out there just inquire and everybody, we are all charged to pray and ask God's blessing upon that great week of outreach and saying we are here to serve the children. And Jesus is the one who tells us, let the little children come to me. It's an amazing week. I hope you can be a part of it. If you have a prayer request, we have both our pastors, David and Chen, up front. And so they are more than happy to pray with you this, uh, this day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we go 
We thank you for your mercy. It's here. It's with us. And for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have the privilege of being your ambassadors to a needy world, a dying world. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be willing. And help us to be diligent in what you've called us to do. Bless us as we go. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you. Go in peace.